Paul, I'm going to continue this morning from where I left off last week, all this month of August, and perhaps a few weeks in September, maybe even more, we are focusing on the major theme of worship. Worship. And last Sunday, I ministered on grace-powered worship. Grace-powered worship. And so for the entire month of August, and again, continue into September, we are going to major on this theme because I really believe God wants to show us, teach us, and reveal some things to us so that we together can create an atmosphere in which the glory of God is manifested. And when that happens, signs, wonders, miracles will be happenstance. We won't have to sweat for it. We won't have to toil for it. We will not even have to pray for it. They will just happen. You see, because where God is expressed, God is experienced. And consequently, God becomes exalted. So that's where we're going. We want to express God in worship. We want to experience God in results. And we want to exalt him because he's worthy of all exaltation. And that's why at the end of August, August 24, 25, 26, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, we are fasting, and the theme for the fast is made to worship. Made to worship. Wednesday, 7.30, Thursday, 7.30, Friday at 10 p.m. Made to worship. We're going to teach. We're going to pray. Amen? I am truly, truly expectant. When God laid this on my heart, and I'm getting a ring, Brother Alex, I hope you're working on this for me. Thank you. When God laid this on my heart, it was with the uh, impression that he wants to create an atmosphere where the supernatural becomes natural. That's where we're going. That's where we're going. From each one of us as individuals becoming a worshiper so that when we now come together in a corporate setting, we are not putting the uh, burden on just the platform ministers. They have their part to play. But as each one of us brings our fire, because we've been kindled by God, our hearts have become the altar from which praise goes up to him on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, in every aspect of our living and our existence. When we now come together on Sunday, there is a huge, major combustion. Why? Because we have many fires coming together to become an explosion. That's where we're going. I'm setting the stage. I'm helping to understand. I'm, I'm casting a vision of what's to be. So you can appropriately guard yourselves and be prepared. I'm telling you, miracles, signs, and wonders will be happening on a given daily basis when we come together. It, won't because of, it will not be because of any man. No way. No, 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 no. No, no. It will not be by might, nor by power, but by his spirit. And no flesh shall get any glory. And that's why God is going to do what he wants to do. Because as we are singing, praying, even preaching, miracles begin to happen. Science will begin to happen. Things will begin to happen that we did not pray for or even look for. Why? Because God will be doing the surgery. God will be the one in major operation. Amen? Yeah. But for that to happen, 
you and I must become true worshippers. You and I must understand what worship is all about and express that worship to God. And as we express it to him, we experience the benefits and the blessings from him. And then as a result of that, we exalt him that much more. Is that understandable? Do we get that? Amen. We are on a journey of which today is only the second installment. Amen? So that being said, go with me to John chapter 4, and we're going to begin to read from verse 4. John chapter 4, verse 4. Now, last week I told you about grace-powered worship, where Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in verse 31, and Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. Basically, I'm paraphrasing. He said, whatsoever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. So clearly there, there were two things that was missing in that verse. Number one, it didn't tell you when to do it. And number three, it didn't tell you where to do it. And that's on purpose. Because the worship that we are talking about is not relegated to a time, 10 a.m. on Sunday morning, or 9 o'clock, or 11 o'clock. No! Neither is it relegated to a place, a location, church, temple, a synagogue, or any of those places. He said, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever it is you do, do it all to the glory of God. So Paul is telling us that worship is not a time, nor is it a place, rather that worship is a lifestyle. Worship is a lifestyle. And for 11 chapters in the book of Romans, he made a strong case for why you and I should worship God. He made it clear about what God has done for a man, a a people, humanity who was doomed to hell and death. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He made the case of God's abundant, incredible, scandalous love in that while you and I were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Oh my goodness! He made the case in Romans chapter 8 that there is therefore now no condemnation to all of them who are in Christ Jesus. Why? We didn't do anything to deserve these things. We didn't do anything to earn them. But because of God's love, because of his grace, God made all of these things available to us. He made it clear to us that if God did not spare his only son, how will he not freely give us all things? Case after case after case after case for 11 chapters, Paul makes the case that God loves you and I expended his love towards us and gives us scandalous grace. And now, as a result of this, in Romans chapter 12, he said, I beseech you now, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, in other words, based on what God has done for you, based upon his grace which he has given to you, I beseech you now, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves as a living sacrifice. Another translation says, as a living spiritual act of worship, which is 
your reasonable service. Or we can paraphrase and say, which is your reasonable response? Worship, therefore, is mind's response to the grace, the love, the blessings, and the mercy we received. Did you get that? That's what worship is about. We worship as a result of an encounter that left us changed. We worship because God in his mercy, in his grace, in his love, is giving us something we did not deserve. Something we did not merit. But he chose to do it anyhow. And when you and I come to the revelation of that blessing, that we have access to a God who loves us unconditionally, not because of my performance, not because of my effort, not because I've done anything that merits being loved, when I come to that revelation, I say, Father, I just bless you. You're a wonderful God. That's what worship is about. But I just want to remind us, worship is not coming to church on Sunday morning. Now, that's wonderful. It's essential. And we'll get to that later. But I want you to know, as you are washing the dishes at home, you worship. As you are doing a homework for your children, you worship. As you are talking to your husband or your wife, you worship. Everything you do that honors God, glorifies God, blesses God, is worship. Oh, I'm going to touch one now that's a little tough. Your religious heart, you may throw it away now. When you kiss your wife, what do you do? Only three people got that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I knew that would throw you off the train. But that's the truth. Everything we do that acknowledges who God is. That blesses who God is. That confirms what God expects. Is worship. With that understanding, you now know that the platform, as good as it is, is an expression of the act of worship, but not the totality of worship. Amen? All right. So by now, you should be in John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And Bishop preached the message already, so I will not hold you guys too long today. So if you are blessed by his message, give him an offering. <laughs> John chapter 4, begin from verse, let's go to verse 4. John chapter 4, verse 4. But he needed to go through Samaria. Now, can you give that to me in the King James Version? The KJV. John 4, verse 4. Look at what it says. Very old English. And he must needs go through Samaria. I mean, these are things we read in the past. And they really did not make a whole lot of sense. So I may not go beyond this verse today. Because I don't want to rush this message. And I want to make sure we live here with something that we can use. So in John chapter 4, the context here is, Jesus was tired and hungry. We know that from the, body, from the context of the message of the whole chapter. He sends his disciples away to go buy food. 
And now he says to us, he must needs. Now, don't go through that in school tomorrow. For, <laughs> don't go to your office and say, I must needs go through <laughs> Lawrenceville. You say that, you may lose your job. <laughs> oh, praise God. He must needs go through Samaria. Now, for those of us who may not be familiar with the uh, geography of Palestine, you may not recognize that Jesus had many options as to the routing of his journey. In other words, he did not have to go through Samaria. However, he felt compelled that he must go through Samaria. How many times is it when you leave your house, you go into a place, and you could take this route, you, go, you could go through Highway 316, but you know what, you decide not to go through Highway 316, you're going to go Highway through before drive, something like that. Something tells you, something compels you to take a different route. Has that ever happened to you? Many times. Many times. It is important for me and you as a believer, as a child of God, not to just be led by your knowledge. Romans 8.14 For as many as led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So don't take for granted that I'm leaving home, going to work, and this is the way I normally take every day, and therefore I must take that same place today. No, don't do that. Be open to God every day. He may want you to take a new route, a new direction, a new place. Why? Because you, you must need to go through Samaria. So on this day, Jesus felt compelled that he needed to go through Samaria. So the question is, why? And the answer is very simple. Let me give you the background of Samaritans so you can understand why Jesus needed to go through there. And that's all we're going to do today, really. Because there's not enough time to go through the rest of the message, but we take it a little bit at a time. Samaria belonged to the northern kingdom of Israel. After David and King Solomon, Israel as a nation was divided into two. You had the, uh, the, the, the northern kingdom, which is all of Israel except two tribes. So you have Judah, which is basically Judah and Benjamin. That's Judah. So anywhere you read Judah in the Bible, he's talking about those two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And when you hear of the northern kingdom, or Israel, it was the rest of the ten tribes. So after so many years of disobedience, the Assyrians came to the northern kingdom, invaded them, defeated them, and captured all of the subjects. And all of them were deported back to Assyria. In other words, they captured them and took them out of their line and took them away to Assyria. All of the subjects of the northern kingdom. Except for those who they deemed were quote-unquote welfare cases. Did you, hear, did you hear what I just said? So the Assyrians left those Jews, those people in northern kingdom who did not have a job, who were weak, who were poor, and who they did not consider useful or productive in Assyria. So they just left them in northern kingdom and said, you guys just rot and perish here. That's what happened. 
Now, now, as a result of this, the Babylonians and other foreign pagan nations around Israel came into that land, commingled with these leftovers, these undeportables, if you will, married them, and therefore they become a commingled people who do not longer belong to the Jewish nation and they really did not belong to the foreign pagan nations. They became generation X, if you will. Are you following what I'm saying? Now, I have to give you this background in order to make the punchline and we'll be gone. Are you following me so far? So these Samaritans originally were these poor, weak Jews who really could not take care of themselves and whom the Assyrians didn't think, eh, these guys, they can't be productive here, so we're going to leave them here. So they intermarried and became Samaritans. They had pagan worship and partly Jewish heritage. That's number one. Number two, number two thing working against them. Because they had been removed from the rest of Israel, they only received the first five books of the Bible. Genesis through Deuteronomy. That's all they had. You say, what's the problem with that? Big. Because all of the writings of the prophets and the Psalms that gave the messianic hope and a larger revelation of who God was was missing. Therefore, their knowledge of who God is was extremely limited. So they established their worship only at Mount Gerizim and didn't know anything else. Now, you can read about this, some of this in the book of Nehemiah and Ezra because when Nehemiah came out with the exiles to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, Sambalat, who was a Samaritan, tried to come and work with him and those guys said, no, you don't belong here, you don't have a portion with us and so forth and so on. Amen? So, over the years, the Samaritans were totally different from the Jews and they did not like one another. I mean, they were despised, they were outcast, they were marginally oppressed, and they had no voice. Whew. Are you still here? So this is the question. These Samaritans lived in close proximity to Israel. They were living next to God, but away from God. They had part of the Godness in them. Why? As you read in John chapter 4, they came out of Jacob. Is that not correct? Yes. They said it in John chapter 4. Right. I believe verse 12. That they were ancestors of Jacob. Yes. Jacob is the grandson of Abraham, from which even Jesus Christ came. So, really, the truth is both the Samaritans and the Jews were hewn out of the same stone. Amen. But one had a revelation of God. The other one didn't. What am I saying to us this morning? Jesus could have gone his jolly way 
keep on preaching to the Jews, keep on doing ministry among the Jews. But he had the understanding that yonder, just next door to us, there is a group of people called the Samaritans. They've been marginalized. They've been oppressed. They've been rejected. Their voice is not heard. They are poor. And the only hope of their liberation was the, in the gospel message that Jesus was carrying. And I'm saying to us this morning, I don't know what your life experience is. You may be sitting here or listening to this message via uh, TV or online or whatever means you choose. And you may be saying, life has dealt with you a very ugly turn. Maybe someone you trusted has violated you. Maybe someone you depended or relied upon has, has, has compromised you. Maybe the systems of this world that you trusted and believed in has failed you. Somewhere along the line, you have become marginalized. You've become compromised. You've become violated. You find yourself vulnerable. And you're saying, no, no, no. There is no answer. God has forgotten you. Because you have to ask yourself the question, what did the Samaritans of Jesus' day. What did they do to find themselves in this situation? What was their sin? What did they do to bring upon themselves the fact that they were poor? Or weak? And as a result to something they had nothing to do with, they find themselves in this precarious situation. Folks, I want to thank God for great men that have gone before us. The likes of William Carey, who in the comfort of his home in England, saw the fact that Indians were perishing without God. And did not just say, you know what, let me buy the next car, the next house, the next wife. He made it a point that he would give his life in the light of unbelievable obstacles and sailed to India. And as a result of that one man's obedience, till today, India feels the presence of God. Or time will not permit me to talk about Mary Slessor, who from Scotland sailed to a place called Nigeria at a time when twins were being killed. And they now remain in the comfort of Scotland and join the blessings of Scotland and say, you know what, I'm going to go to this faraway land to deliver these people. Those people may as well be the Samaritans of our time. But out of their obedience, they took a message to those guys and touched them. Time will not permit me to talk to us about Hudson Taylor, who left the shores of America and went to China and trailed a blaze that till this day, the emblems, the, rather the embers of revival is still burning. No, they did not sit in the comfort of where they were. Just as Jesus did not sit. This is the reason for which, this is the driving force between, be, behind what we do. That's why I was in uh, Asia in January. That's why I was there in June. That's why I'm going back there in November. Listen, there's a fire burning up in my bones to make sure that in my time, with my life, I can offer it to God as an offering. And I believe that that's what God is calling all of us to do. So Jesus understood his job description. Isaiah 49 verse 6. It is a small thing for you to be a light to the Jews only. The Bible says. But that 
he also will be sent as a light to the Gentiles unto whom the ends of salvation has come. So he recognized that and he lived his life with a purpose. Oh, God help us. He did not just exist. He lived with a sense of purpose. And so here he is. He could have taken a different course to where he was going. But he said, I must need go through Samaria. Why, Jesus? Because there's a people in Samaria that has been lost, forgotten. There is a people in Samaria who have been marginalized. There is a people in Samaria who have been violated. There is a people whom the rest of the world has cast asunder and said, can any good thing come out of Samaria? I don't know about you this morning, but Jesus in Acts 1.8 gave us a promise. He said, and you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. That was his promise. It was good then, it's good now, it will be good forever. Amen. So he went to Samaria because he understood that the issue of worship was connected to the issue of salvation. You cannot worship unless you are saved. Salvation gives room to worship. Because if you read the text as we will in weeks to come, you realize that Jesus defined for this Samarian woman what worship is. He made it clear that the Father is seeking true worshipers. He's not just seeking worshipers. He's seeking true worshipers. Which lends the question, if he's seeking for true worshipers, there must be false worshipers. We'll be adjusting those in weeks to come. And many of us that came from my background, my background, the African context, you need to know about false worship. We could write a textbook on them. We have a God of thunder, a God of the sun, the God of the water. Hello, somebody. Many of you here hearing me, you've worshipped at many of these altars in your past. But thank God for deliverance. Thank God for deliverance. All of those things are what? False worship. That's why God told this woman, God is seeking true worshippers. Not just people who have a level of worship, but don't know who, who they're worshipping. So he had to go through Samaria. Because Jesus understood that the only way to bring God what he desires is through salvation. If you read that scripture, John chapter 4 verse 23. He said, the hour is coming, and now is. The hour is coming, and now is. John 4, 23. That God, that those that worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. And it goes on to say, for the Father seeketh such to worship. The hour is coming, and now is. When the true worshipers, not just any worshiper, true worshipers, we worship the Father in spirit and in truth. We'll break that down later. For the Father is seeking such. Do you know that God is seeking somebody this morning? Amen. Do you realize this morning that God has a need? 
We, we, we really scarcely think in those terms that the God of the universe can have a need. But here you see it. He's seeking such to worship him. So how will he get this need met? He has to send Jesus. He has to send Jesus. Jesus became, became, became God's answer to fulfilling this need. And in my time and your time, we are the Jesus that the world will see. Because the Christ in us is the hope of glory. We carry Jesus wherever we go. When we open our mouth, hopefully we speak Jesus. When we raise our hands, hopefully they see Jesus' manifestation. When we walk, hopefully they see Jesus at work. Let me just close this morning with this little observation. When salvation and the cross, or rather, let me say it this way, when sin and the cross comes together, all needs are met. Now, that's a loaded statement, but I'm going to show it to you in a minute. When sin and the cross comes together, all needs are met. Wow. Okay, let me, let me, let me just break it down. We've got to go home. Why did this woman come to the well? Can you talk to me, please? What did they say? Water. To fetch some water. Correct. The rest of you guys have never read, read the story? Yeah. <laughs> the way you guys are looking at me, you want to go home and watch our same boat around the uh, 100 meters and what, what? So she came to the well to do what? Fetch water. So she left where she lived with a bucket on purpose. To go and fetch water. Is that correct? Why did Jesus go to the well? Verse 6. Thank you. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus therefore being wearied from his journey. Sat thus by the well. Thank you very much. Now. It is interesting to me. To see. That after this encounter with Jesus, the Bible said the lady left her water pot. John chapter 4 verse 28. The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all things I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Are you kidding me? She came to the well, left her house. I don't know how many miles journey she took to go to the well. She came there and as a result of an encounter with Jesus Christ, my God, all of a sudden, her needs were changed. She had no need any longer for that water pot, nor for any water to drink. She in fact left the water pot at the well to show that I don't need this anymore. And went back to a town to proclaim to those who had made her an outcast and ostracized her and sidelined her and those who depreciated her. Those were her first audience to let them know, I know I've met a man. Hallelujah. She left her water pot. But that's not all. So on her part, her need was met. On Jesus' part, finally the disciples returned. And they brought some food. I don't know what it was. Chick-fil-A, hamburger, whopper, whatever it was they brought to them. As a master, delicious meal is here. We got it, man. We kill it. It's kosher. 
We made sure it was right. What did he say to them? He said to them very clearly. He said, I have, how, how did he say? Let, let me sure I get it correctly. I have need that you know not of. I have meat, really, yeah, that you know not of. And then he goes on to tell them, my will or my meat is to do the will of God and to finish it. What? We went miles to go and fetch this food. Now you are no longer hungry? How was your need met, God? What, what do you mean you are not hungry? Do you know how long it took us to go and get this food? Now you are no longer hungry. What did you eat? What's the point I'm making? When we repent of our sins, God becomes satisfied. He's filled. Because why? Because he recognizes that that repentance or that change of mind will lead to a, an expression of worship. Yes. And that's what he's looking for. My change of mind will ultimately lead to an expression of worship. And God knows that. And when that happens, it's filled. It's filled. It's filled. Look at Philippians 4.19. Paul talking. My God shall supply all of your need according to the sweet glory by Christ Jesus. And talks about how the offering was a sweet, sweet it, it was a sweet smelling savor. In other words, ah man, I'm satisfied. So when the person sins, whether he's a sinner or a saint, who sins? And we change our mind. When you change your mind, there's a deposit from God that comes to you that satisfies you. Hallelujah. The burden is lifted. The yoke is broken. The, the shackles are, are loosed. In that moment, you receive something from God that totally disarms you and places you in a new realm. You're satisfied. But at the same time, it's an exchange that takes place. God, and from that satisfaction, now you just say, God, I thank you. God said, yes. That's what I made you for. That's what I created you for. I created you to give me glory, to give me honor, to give me blessing, to give me praise. I created you for this. And when we give him what he created for, he's satisfied. And out of his satisfaction, you are satisfied. Father, I don't know who I'm speaking to today. Who has a Samaritan experience? They feel violated. They feel compromised. They are vulnerable. They find themselves in a condition, a place for which they cannot change the situation or the circumstance. Life has dealt them a bad deal. Every system and institution they've trusted and believed in has failed. And they're asking, is there a God in heaven? Why did God allow this to happen to me? Why did God not fix this or fix that? And I hear you saying from your throne this morning, I've already fixed it. If you just believe and receive what I've done already, you can enter into peace, can enter into rest, can enter into your blessings. And so Father God, I pray for that individual right now, wherever they may be, wherever they may be. Father God, in the name of Jesus, that you, God, would change the captivity around. 
Lord, as you did it for that Samaritan woman back in that day, where she came to the world with a need and left filled with your peace and your joy and your satisfaction. Even so, God, I thank you right now in the name of Jesus that every bad deal that the life has given us is turned around. You are overturning the captivities of your people right now in the name of Jesus. God, that out of our brokenness, we find your satisfaction. My Lord and my God, out of lives that's broken into pieces, hopes that's shattered, you, God, can recover and help us to make sense out of our lives. And that's why today, God, first and foremost, we cast our lives right at your cross. Lord Jesus, we believe you. We thank you that when we were weak, when we were poor, when we couldn't help ourselves, you already helped us. And so we receive your help. We thank you for that help. We bless you for it. Thank you, Father God. That we are now accepted in the beloved. And we, like the Samaritan, can go and tell all the distractors and all the naysayers that there is a God in heaven who cares about us and who loves us dearly and who's blessing us daily. Thank you for healings that's taking place here this morning. Chains that's broken, shackles that's loosed. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you that we will never ever remain the same again because of the testimony of your love towards us. Thank you, Father. We bless you and we praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Now, if perhaps there's a Samaritan here now, by that I mean if you've never known Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you've never been born again, if you've never accepted this great gift of salvation, I don't want to take any, I don't want to assume anything. I want to give you the opportunity. If there's anybody here and say, you know what? I want to come out of the shadows. I want to be able to offer God true and acceptable worship. If that's you, I'd like to pray for you right now. Is there anybody here right now and says, you know, Pastor, I want to get it right. Amen. Praise God. Amen. Hallelujah. Over to you, Pastor. I begin. Thank you.